0: Get started today at plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Thank you for listening to Kicking the Kairiaki. And that makes you pretty kick-ass. We are an intersectional feminist podcast
2: co-created by me, Sid. And me, Elena. We really hope that you enjoyed the first episode last month. And as ever, we'd love to hear from you. So... Give us a rating on iTunes and
1: visit our website. You can call us out, be a guest or suggest a topic at www.kickingthekiriarchy.org or you can tweet us at kickkiriarchy.
2: So for example, Sarah and Tom pointed out to us that it's better to say non-disabled
1: than able or able-bodied when describing the absence of a disability. And Helen got in touch because she really liked the podcast content and tone, but would have liked it to touch on privilege by virtue of age, which actually we should probably devote an entire episode to.
2: And lastly, we had an anonymous comment that basically said that everyone has experienced discrimination and discrimination can be far more complex than the issues that we touched on. And this is really valid and it would have been great to have had a contact and a name so that we
1: could get in contact, uh, get more info and links to We Can Educate Ourselves and share. Thank you for getting in touch because we're taking it all on board. We've had an overwhelmingly positive response from everyone who's listened, so thank you for taking the time to let us know. If you want to put this in the form of an iTunes review, that would be even better. We're also working on getting some
2: advertising so that we can help contribute to the costs in getting involved, so for example, getting to and
1: from the studio. So... After a pretty abstract topic like privilege, we're going to sink our teeth into beauty. Whilst we might disagree on how best to explain beauty, can we agree on beauty standards and how they affect us?
2: Sid and I are going to acknowledge right here and now that we are what you might call normatively pretty. So, blonde hair, blue eyes, white skin and slim. And but that's, that's
3: enough, enough about, about us.
1: us. We're so badass, <laughs> yeah, we are just kick in your ass, yeah, kick Kick, kick, the karaoke, kick, kick, the karaoke.
0: (laughs) Ray. Please introduce yourself. Hi, so I'm Ray. I am a white, cisgendered, fat female and I talk very loudly on the internet about being fat and being mentally ill and being disabled. I'm a big believer in being out there and being a role model for people and I also run a personal blog, which I'm going to be turning into a professional blog which mentors young people who are dealing with being fat or mentally ill or disabled or questioning their sexuality. Oh, I'm also bisexual. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's me.
1: That's brilliant. Can you tell us where we can find the blogs or do you want to plug them?
0: So um, at the moment, you can find me on Twitter at Oiray, which is O-I-R-A-E. Um, You can also request me on Instagram if you like um, seeing fat people and food, (laughs) because there's plenty of that on there. And I'm in the process of uh, making my formal blog, um, which will be launched through my Twitter very soon.
1: Exciting. We will definitely watch that platform.
2: (laughs) Yes, we'll definitely share that on our Twitter when it's (laughs) released and shared. Fantastic.
0: What do beauty standards mean to you? See, I always have in the back of my head beauty standards as being white, thin and naturally thin. That's the other thing that always comes up for me and often blonde. But it's a really cis female thin standard, which I think we're all held to. And I think it really affects or has affected me. And I know it's affected a lot of people in having this bizarre ideal in the back of your head, which is like a a Frankenstein of yourself. You know, you, you hold yourself to a standard which is totally impossible and totally improbable. And that's what a beauty standard means to me. It's that thing of there's tons of magazines, there's tons of actresses, there's tons of singers that all kind of end up being the same thin white woman. And then you just sort of end up sticking your head on top.
2: (laughs) I think that's probably a beauty standard that... At least I can identify with, Mm. and I assume you too, Sid. I think think that's
1: really, really well written. That's totally (laughs) it, isn't it? You pop your head on it.
2: So,
0: when did you become aware of beauty standards? Is there a particular age? I hit puberty very young, so I got started to get treated like an adult when I was about eight years old. Wow, Um, that's really young. Yeah, it is really young. I'm, um, I'm five foot three for the listeners, but I've been five foot three since I was nine years old. I, I had a growth spurt young. So, people started to refer to me in a way which was very inappropriate, really. Like, they, they really um, started to put those ideas in my head of, of what you should look like and stop treating you like a child. And because I had to wear adult clothes as well, because I was tall, it suddenly opened up this whole world of fashion to me, which was very scary. I mean, you know, it's one thing dressing up your dolls, it's another thing having to dress up yourself. So that's when I really start to become aware of it and being aware that I wasn't like other children and then you become aware that you're not really like the other teenagers. And as someone that's big in every way, it starts to make you feel othered.
1: I think what you're talking about there when you're talking about puberty Mm -hmm. and the wider context of the world is kind of that society ideal of what it means to be a woman maybe. absolutely. Can you touch a bit more about that? Because I can't... Because being eight and being told things like that in comments... And...
2: Yeah, that's the thing that I'm really shocked about is the fact that when you think about being eight years old, that's really, really young to the... have like, such strong
0: ideals and to be treated as like a woman. Well, this is an interesting point, actually. It does lead very much into fat identity as well. People judge you on your looks. They judge you on what they see first off. They don't ask you anything about your life, about your circumstances. To those people, I was not an eight-year-old. The people on the street... They did not see an eight-year-old. They saw someone who might be 14, 15, 16. That really influences you because you're always being taken to something you're not. And there's always assumptions being made about you. And having to learn that very young, I think everyone learns that eventually. But learning that at eight or nine years old is a really big marker. You will be judged on your appearance and you can't change that. All you can really change is how much you care, (laughs) Right.
1: How do you think all of this shapes your identity now? So, for example, you're a fat activist. Is that the word? Yeah, I'd say that. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I'm very happy to be called fat. A massive part of that has been... I was facing stuff which other people wasn't facing at that age, you know, like crushes on boys, really strong crushes on boys, and then later on crushes on girls. And I really sort of buried myself in food around that time. So what is fat activism? Fat activism covers quite a few things, but the main thing it covers is... Being out there in society, being able to call yourself fat, and accepting that that is a, your body shape right now—you might not be that forever. You might not be that in the past, but right now, in this moment, you're a fat person. And fat activism usually concerns itself with educating people. I'd say that attacking fat people is the last acceptable hatred, and nobody will ban. I've had people you know, grab my body in the street in London. I've had people shout stuff at me. I've had people throw stuff at me. And people think that's OK. People will just stand by and they'll let that happen. The only people that come to my aid around that are other fat people. And it's shocking. And I think it's completely unacceptable. And that's what fat activism is at the heart of it. It's just it's just saying, treat fat people like human beings. Makes sense. <laughs> You'd say that, but, you know, you look at any article about fat people and the comments will be 90% ill-educated vitriol it will just be pure hatred there won't be any actual science behind it and they have no idea why you're fat they have no idea what has caused it or whether it's just that you eat lots of food whether it's that you're disabled like i am you know there could be a myriad of reasons it's not really your business what the reasons are you don't have any claim on that person's life unless you're that person's family unless you're that person's doctor even then that is that person's own choice And it kind of leads to the third point, which is in the majority of cases, you'll find that it's just that people don't like looking at you. They've got their own aesthetic preferences, and that's all that really matters to them. We call it health trolling, where they just, they bring up all these facts about obesity, and you can say, well, what about a thin, inactive person? What about a thin person that eats red meat every day, or drinks four or five units of alcohol a day? They'll just try and change the subject back onto, oh, but you're fat. And it's like, well, yeah, I am, and I know the health risk, but... I personally don't drink and I don't eat red meat and I exercise.
2: I think it's interesting comparing it to things like smoking and how you wouldn't have a smoking activist but you have someone like a fat activist and if we acknowledge that maybe being fat isn't healthy
0: mm. why is that okay? It's kind of only one example it's like it's the very worst devil's advocate example the fact is that some of us are at our most healthiest when we're fat those of us who are recovering from eating disorders might actually be our healthiest when we're carrying more weight.
2: And when we talk about health, we're also talking about mental health as well. Of course, right.
0: of course. And I'm definitely at my healthiest now. I've suffered from extremely low self-esteem most of my life, mostly linked to my weight, and a really aggressive inner voice about how much I weigh. When I've weighed a lot less than I do now, there is no one fat person, like there is no one thin person. I've got a friend that runs marathons, who is British size 22. But, you know, then there'll be fat people that can't walk for more than a mile. You know, there's no good or bad fat people, like there's no good or bad thin people. But for my personal story, I've always been overweight, but I became the size I am now, which is a British size 20, after becoming disabled and having drastically reduced my mobility. I can walk now, but I couldn't always walk unaided. And I found it very hard to keep the weight off because I still had to eat and I've never been one of those people that can eat what they want I've I've always been someone that has to be very careful with what I eat and so for me that's why I'm fat and I could have really hated myself for a long time if I hadn't worked on going well actually I have to choose my battles and by starting from there I actually then went on this massive path of self-love and now I think I'm the happiest I've ever been That's amazing. (laughs) Because the moment... The the great secret is, of course, consumerism is built on us hating ourselves, isn't it? All of us, whether we're... So true. Whether we're thin or not, it's built on us hating ourselves so we can buy the thing to make us better. And I see thin friends of mine all the time talking about their weight. You will never be satisfied unless you can accept where you are right now. The basic line is you cannot wait for your life to start when you hit a certain weight because you will probably not actually look like you want to when you get there anyway. (laughs) As I said, my ideal self in my head had longer legs, bigger feet and had um, a wider rib cage and smaller breasts and it's like all these things that I was not going to get to.
2: Yeah, I think that's one of my (laughs) biggest gripes is that I hear all these, mostly women, talking about all these ideal bodies and it's like that's just not your body shape and Mm -hmm. I just really want to emphasise the whole point of body shape and body size and that it's all different that some people just now naturally like
0: that and that's okay absolutely I get very down as well at the idea that in order to celebrate one body you have to throw the other body under the bus whether well, that, that whole controversy around Daisy Ridley recently who is the actress in Star Wars when people are saying she's too skinny and it's like have you seen her lift she is in prime health we don't need to attack her to feel better about who we are that's called thin shaming well, yeah, it's, I mean, it is a slightly different thing though, I would say. I mean, there's the fact that you're never going to be not hired for being too thin unless it's like specifically, I don't know, modelling. But in the majority of industries, you're not going to get turned away from a job for being thin, whereas you will with being fat. It's a reality. You do. This is the other serious side of it. People always talk, oh, it's about what you can buy on the high street. And that is important, but it's not. I mean, you can get rejected for insurance purely based on two numbers on a piece of paper. They won't weigh you, they won't test your fitness, they will just look at it and go, nope. You can get rejected for very important life things which would not be barred to thin people.
2: Have you ever been rejected for something or is that um, has that ever been a direct experience for you? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I've been rejected for um, very important housing insurance based on my BMI. Um, nothing else. But it's a reality for many people. I've got friends that have been rejected for jobs, very qualified women. You have to dress smarter as well. I mean, if a thin girl goes out in jogging bottoms and uh, um, sheepskin boots and their hair up in a messy bun, she's bohemian, she's fun. If a fat person does it, they don't love themselves. So,
1: You talked about other successful women being turned away from jobs. Mm-hmm. Do you think this affects other genders as well?
0: I think it does, but I think it's worse for women. I think femme-presenting people, for sure, get it worse.
1: Can you quickly explain what um, femme-presenting means?
0: So if they wear clothing which is traditionally seen as feminine... But people might not necessarily actually be identify as women. But in previous jobs, I've certainly um, worn very similar outfits to thin colleagues and been told I'm not smart enough, which is upsetting.
1: <laughs> could we be fat activists? Or how could we be an ally? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And I think,
0: listen, everyone says that first, is listen to fat people when they say... I'm good with being called fat it's an identifier just as anything else like if they're okay with it don't say oh but you're not fat you're beautiful that's my biggest bugbear I hate when people say that to me I am both that's fine (laughs) Listen to what they want to be called, um, listen to their gripes, listen to the concern and take it seriously. It's always frustrating when people hijack conversations, you know, when somebody says this is a really hard thing for a fat woman and it's like, oh yeah, all women slightly feel that, you know, (laughs) but it is different for fat women. There is a greater level of violence and I would call it violence against them. But yeah, if you can listen to that and not bring in your own body criticism, as well i think that's another big point i don't mind reading or listening to my friends have their weight concerns but what you've got to remember is for somebody who's thinking well i want to lose four or five pounds to fit in that dress you're talking about being in the game and we're talking about being so far outside that race (laughs) you know we're not in that game anymore i'll just describe my body type a little bit actually on that note i'm largely hourglass. I've got a bit of a stomach. I'm short, but I'm also just a size 20. I mean, to some people that will sound horrific, but I am just a size 20. I am a moderate fat. (laughs) I am at a size where I can fit in chairs. I'm fitting in a chair right now. I can go on planes. I just about come under the weight restriction on most things. I can have privilege there, which a lot of fat women do not have. I can shop on the high street in some stores where a lot of people can't do that. I think it's very important to, for me to acknowledge that I have that privilege as well.
2: I just wanted to quickly touch on how fat people can be disadvantaged in the sense that you can be fat as a result of a disability. Is that fair yeah. to say? But then also to an extent you're also being disadvantaged because buying things like clothes is more expensive. It is. Would class, would it be fair to say that class almost comes
0: into this? Class is a massive part of um, fat politic, to be honest, because it's not so bad in the UK. I say not so bad. It is still a problem, but in America, to buy the sort of food that will give you a healthy start, a healthy lifestyle, or will be seen as good eating, is extraordinarily expensive compared to buying fast food and buying things that are cheap and filling and do have nutritional value. Over here, it's a little bit easier, but there's still a massive problem with accessible food. And that feeds into it. There is a class divide. I don't want to get too much into fat narrative because it's very easy to say that there are good fats and there are bad fats. There are people that are trying their best and they're striving and then there are people that are just lazy and feeding into that stereotype. I don't like those stereotypes. Everyone's got their own story. But for my own personal story I did have an upbringing where I wasn't eating regularly and I didn't have the nutritional um, understanding that a lot of young people might have or a lot of families might have and I didn't have an active childhood because I had a disabled mother as well and that does feed into it if you do not have access to that and if that is not something that you grow up with I think there's studies now that show that if you are a fat child you will probably always be fat And I think it can be very classist to say, oh, well, everyone has access to certain diets and certain gyms and certain um, lifestyles. Like, I'm sorry, but I I know it's it's, it's not true. But there are certain people that think that the vegan lifestyle is, although it's it's very good for you, it is prohibitively expensive. And people like um, Jack Monroe have proved that that's not the case, but it's that's through a lot of work on on their part you know they have really researched into this that's the thing we
2: can't all be nutritionists Mm -hmm. or people who like devote our lives to being chefs and running a blog on food that's just not
0: it's not the reality for every person the luxury of time and this is this is the other point that I think is very important I could dedicate more time to exercise I do exercise every day but I could do more but I have to work because of this government. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They will not pay out for my level of disabled. I work part-time actually now because I've been forced into part-time working because of my disability. And so I don't have the financial benefit of being able to afford a personal trainer who could possibly help me or any of these things that could possibly help me. But then I don't want the help. (laughs) I'm actually fine with who I am. I know people that, as I said, run marathons and weigh 15, 16 stone. It's not like they are mutually exclusive. You can live the best life, you can, being fat.
1: (laughs) I'm wondering about your intersecting identities in Mm. terms of disabled and fat, and maybe even your sexual orientation. How do you decide what you are active on? I mean, I would say that becoming
0: disabled made me a fat activist. And I know a lot of people who have become fat after becoming disabled. Because you do have to pick your battles. Like If you're in chronic pain, which is my problem, you can't expect to have a consistent lifestyle. And a consistent not having a consistent lifestyle in will affect your weight. You've got to pick your battle on that. And I could not go down the route of addressing my weight the way society wanted me to, and work, and have a life, <laughs> and be happy in myself. So I made a very conscious decision that I would come to terms with my body. And that meant coming to terms with the fact I was fat, and disabled. So those two really tightly tie in together. I'd say being bisexual, I think with any of these things, living slightly outside what society views as the default always makes you question things more. I I do think that the straight world does put a lot of pressure on women to be one type of person. And the silly thing is, of course, a large portion of men don't necessarily want that one ideal. They have as much varied interest as anyone else. And I think that was a big turning point for me when I
1: realised, oh, people still want to have sex with me when I'm fat. I think that's really important and I think it plays into the idea of a male gaze in magazines and things but also if you're by, it's about who would be interested in you it's more about the people.
0: Well for me Honestly. it's just meant that I can focus on the people I can focus on being around people that make me feel good rather than which is a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> But you'd be surprised how many people don't focus on that I mean especially if you are a fat person and you're constantly being told that your body is disgusting it makes you feel that your body is disgusting and if you buy into oh well you can't go on a date and oh, there's there's a advert for a slimming drink at the moment where they say oh I'm going to take this for a week because I have a date at the end of the week I mean that's a scene isn't it yeah that you should alter yourself for for a date date. exactly
1: (laughs) and it's just but that's that most of them are shit anyway
0: and it's that thing of going that idea though is really strongly ingrained in our culture and whenever I was starting to date when I was younger and I was sort of on that borderline I was a size 16 I was noticeably bigger than other people But I would still think, God, I don't want to meet this person. What if they don't like me because I'm fat? Now it's like, well, if they don't, they can leave. (laughs) Who cares? That person is not someone I want to be around. Yeah. And that's brilliant.
2: So what do you say to people who
0: say that you're championing an unhealthy lifestyle? See, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I just think I'm just championing living the best life I can and I'm championing other people to to live the best life they can. I don't think that people should be not exercising, but they shouldn't think that exercise and eating a better diet is going to fix all their problems, because it might not. What I am championing is people not treating people that are fat as if they are lesser. That's what I'm championing. I want people to stop thinking that they can motivate people with hate, because they cannot. I spent so much of my young life motivating myself with hatred or trying to i would try and go for runs and all in time in my head whenever i started to feel tired it was just like "You should be fat bitch you can't do this you can't do this you're never going to be an acceptable person you might as well fucking give up now that was the constant stream in my head i'd look in the mirror and i'd be like you're fucking disgusting nobody will love you that was my constant narrative through every day of my life i didn't need to hear it from anyone else But they would still fucking say it (laughs) because Mm. they think it's their right to say it to me. I'm championing people being able to look in the mirror and say, I'm okay with what I see. I'm okay with who I am. So what would you say to your younger self? What would you
2: say to 14 year old Ray? I would say the cliche, it gets better, but (laughs) it does get
0: better. It does. The moment you can kind of look at your body and go, this is what I have is the moment you'll be able to just enjoy your life. 14-year-old me is just actually starting down the road of an eating disorder. So that's a really interesting age you've chosen there. And I would say save yourself the trouble because you will get to 16 and you will still be a size 14 to 16. You will still look to everyone else like you're chubby, even though you can see all your ribs, even though you can see your hip bone. You will still look fat. (laughs) Society will tell you, you look fat. So stop worrying and just live your life. Own it. And it's not just something I would say to fat kids. either. It's just something I would say to every young woman. Yeah, you might have a pear shape. So what? You might have one breast bigger than the other. So what? Society is set up so you do not love yourself. Yeah. They really want you to not love yourself. If you're fat, if you're too skinny in their eyes, if your breasts are too small, if you have thighs that touch, the whole thigh gap thing, my God. And people are obsessed with this. And whatever you look like, the first thing is is loving yourself. Once you start there, you can start to be the person you want to be. That sounds so trite.
1: (laughs) It sounds so kick-ass. That's what it sounds like. like you're a kick-ass. I mean, if you think about, you know, we walk into any corner shop and the kind of magazines you'll see and mm. the headlines and stuff, that that is not trite. That is kick-ass. <laughs> that is exactly what we should be telling every single one yeah, of us. That's... And we shouldn't be writing on our mirrors so it's the first thing you see when you wake up in the morning. Oh, yeah. I mean, a big part is also
0: stop reading those magazines. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> Just get them out of your life. Stop listening to those people. Realise that they're selling you something. Get out of the system, you know. Just start focusing <laughs> on yourself. Don't play the game. Don't play the game. That's it. No matter what size you are, do not play that game because you will end up losing. And also, you know, self-love isn't easy. You've got to work at it. And I think that's a really important thing as well. So many women are told that, all women, I would say, are told that loving themselves is an indulgence and it's not. as essential. Taking that time to enjoy your body, to spend time with yourself, To masturbate, (laughs) to really actually, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. But actually, you know, but how many young women don't do that because they are scared of their bodies, right? Because they're told, yeah,
2: they're told they're made to feel guilty, yeah, for being a woman,
0: yeah, and for being indulgent in yourself. And I think that's a really important thing. Enjoy being in your body. Enjoy what your body does. Relish every little detail about it, and you will start to love yourself. Focus in, don't focus out. (laughs) Yeah. yes (laughs)
1: yes <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> yeah oh right you have been a kick-ass guest okay. listeners you can see us but Elena and I were definitely nodding for most of that the whole way <laughs> do you want to share because we found you through the London fat activist
0: clothes oh, yeah,
1: swap yeah, do you want to share yeah. out about that
0: <laughs> so it's not my project but it's a fantastic project um, there is a group on Facebook called fat positive London um, which is an excellent group which is free of weight loss talk It's free of diet talk. It's all about being fat and being you at that moment and finding a supportive community of like-minded people who are happy just the way they are. And a subgroup of that is um, the Fat Positive Clothes Swap, which is a fantastic place to pick up um, a range of clothes from usually from about size 18 all the way up to about size 32. Um, and it's um, you get some real fantastic bargains there from professional models and bloggers and just other really fashionable fat folk. And I highly recommend, if you are a fat person in the UK, signing up for those groups and coming to join us and making some friends.
4: Yay! I
1: really like the fashionable fat folk. I like I the am alliteration. Am.
4: <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was cool. brilliant. Ashna, introduce yourself. I am Ashna, as you say. I'm a 23-year-old this gender, straight female British Mauritian so I was born in England but both my parents are originally from Mauritius. I'm a journalist working in television and I'm based in Bristol and I would say that I'm a bit of an optimist and I like to smile a lot.
1: <laughs> when did you first become aware of beauty standards?
4: I definitely first became aware of it from a very young age. I think it's from watching television, especially watching, my mum used to watch these Asian soap dramas on television, and it would completely just be fair-skinned women, very, very pretty, very sort of Western view of how pretty they were. But it was definitely through magazines, and I recognised the differences between me and the models in the magazines, and I think that's what made me more aware of what beauty standards were growing up in England.
2: Can you be a feminist and wear makeup?
4: I would definitely say you can. Absolutely. Because I think makeup is fun. It's an art, I think. And personally, I find it quite empowering putting makeup on. You know, I don't do my eyeliner nicely and and flicked in a funky way for anyone else but myself. I quite enjoy the fact that my eyebrows look on fleek, you know. (laughs) Do you ever
2: have any difficulty when it comes to finding makeup to suit your shade of skin?
4: It's a constant buckbear trying to find makeup to suit my skin shade, and I think a lot of Asian women would agree and people from the black community as well but also not only just finding products that match our skin tone but also finding affordable products a lot Mm. of products that that do do these shades sort of brands like MAC or Lancome or Dior and you know they're quite pricey and it's just not so easy to get your drugstore brands you know like your Maybelline and stuff And this lady at work commented on how She'd been to Birmingham for the weekend. This is a white lady, and she couldn't find any, you know, white makeup, so to speak, any any makeup to suit her skin tone up there because it was all darker shades. And I found that particularly interesting. Wonder it's, whether you know it's geographically based, which sounds bizarre.
1: Did you tell her "Welcome to my world" or something?
4: Yeah, I did. I was a bit like, well, that's how I feel all the time. Yeah. And they even get me started on skin coloured tights.
1: Oh, interesting. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because that's something like yeah. I've never had to think about.
4: I went to an all-girls school, a secondary school, and it was seen as the norm that you would have to wear skin-coloured tights in summer. And I just didn't have, they didn't sell skin-coloured tights. And people found this bizarre. But obviously it's not really something people think about unless it's a genuine issue for you. So I was walking around, I was trying to look in all these tight sections, and nowhere sold tights that were appropriate for my skin tone and I just end up having to wear black tight in Mm. summer
1: I remember being 10 and reading Mallory Blackman's Noughts and Crosses and there was a section about the plasters and that totally blew my mind because I'd never ever thought about the fact that skin coloured plasters were always pink they were always like my kind of pink but I remember like the penny drop moment is that the same is that a bit like tights?
4: oh yeah definitely it's you know it's so much more obvious when you've got a plaster on your leg when your skin tone is different to that of a plaster and that's why I'd usually buy the see-through one but having sort of a light cream plaster on you it does stand out it really does but also speaking of plasters the other thing that I find quite strange is that still even with all this talk about diversity and you know different skin tones in a box of crayons the pale neutral colour of a pinky colour is still called skin I had no idea what do
1: you do for tights now?
4: oh it's still a constant issue I just don't wear skin colour tights because there aren't any does
1: this piss you off? I mean I know you're optimistic and smiley but
4: oh no optimistic and smiley but also it's just not fair really and there was a candidate on The Apprentice last year who I think she was she brought this up as an issue And her business idea was to create tights for all shades of skin. And whilst that's a great idea, at least make them affordable. I think there are tights out there. They're priced at like £30 for (laughs) five pairs of tights. I can't afford that. Also, you get
1: holes in tights
2: so easily.
4: Yeah. It's not economical.
2: So Ashna, I understand that you've done a documentary on shadism. Yes, that's right. Tell us about that. Tell us like what you learn and how we can listen to it and just all about it.
4: So I did a documentary, a radio documentary on shadism, and I basically found out that we as women are self-conscious as it is. There are methods for harming ourselves for beauty all around us. You know, people pluck their eyebrows shaving and even plastic surgery. So it was seemed bizarre to me why people were putting skin lightening products or lotions onto their skin and risk burning their skin or scarring themselves to destroy the melanin cells that are in their body because they didn't like the colour of themselves. These skin lighteners contain everything from mercury to a chemical called hydroquinone and it just it was so damaging and it was a practice from when they were seven years old it was ingrained in them that that was the normal thing to do but I definitely learned that especially the companies that produce these these products they thrive on that insecurity within young women young men as well companies exploit that fear that it's revolting to be too dark and they use the success stories to brand their products which is so harmful Oh, and you can listen to it on
2: my blog from com. So I want to talk about the new Nina Simone movie and there's been quite a lot of controversy over the fact that Zoe Saldana is playing Nina Simone and she's had a lot of um hate, basically, for the fact that she is uh, a lot lighter than Nina Simone originally was and has been kind of trashed for blackfacing almost in the fact that they've had to make Zoe Saldana darker to play the role of Nina Simone. And I was just wondering, can you comment on the fact Zoe Saldana is receiving all this hate for it? And also, is it blackfacing if you're already black?
4: So I think Zoe Saldana's casting in the movie, it highlights that never-ending battle for women of colour to be cast in leading roles. So here you've got a black woman being told that her African or Caribbean qualities are still not good enough, or in this case with Zoe, that she's, she's not light enough to then pretend to be dark enough. So here, Nina is it's a music icon that everyone knows the face of, and her image is being skewed in order to make an attractive, quote, Hollywood movie. But I think it's once again showing that the colour and shade of a black woman's skin is being displayed as a hindrance and a setback. On the flip side, I think Saldana, I think she spoke to InStyle magazine and she said that Elizabeth Taylor wasn't right for the Cleopatra role either. So perhaps an artist is colourless, is genderless. So is it part of the art form itself?
2: That's a really interesting point. But then having said that, Elizabeth Taylor, that movie would have been cast, I don't know when, years ago? And you would have thought that maybe we would have got a bit more progressive. But then again, having said that, if it's an art form, does it matter?
4: Yeah, I I mean, it's definitely a debate to be had. But I do think, surely, out of all the black actors in, in the whole of the world, could they really not find anybody that would be able to perpetuate that role?
1: That's what it comes back to, isn't it? How many roles are there for black actors?
2: I mean, I don't want to trash talk Zoe Saldana because she's an artist, but the fact that they've had to, like, I don't know, in quotation marks, black her up, when there are so many talented actresses like Vida Davis who are absolutely killing it in film and
1: TV, and it's like, did you need to do that? Yeah. Could you tell us some more about shadism? Because you said you might have some insight from the Asian community.
4: Absolutely. So um, shadism, or some people call it colourism, it's discrimination based on your skin colour. So it's a form of prejudice in which people are treated differently based on the social meanings attached to their skin colour. The basics of it are the more tanned your skin is, the lower your class and the fairer your skin, and um, the wealthier and the more attractive you are. Discrimination that causes self-loathing and prompts the use of skin whiteners or lightening products.
2: So then how does this affect the Asian community? A
4: huge issue still in the Asian community, particularly when it comes down to marriage or career prospects, there are so many skin lightening brands out there that seem to keep multiplying, like Fair and Lovely. And I think the name just says it all, really. The fairer your skin, the lovelier you are, the cleverer you are, the better you are. It's a concept that has been ingrained in so many people, not just in Asian communities. You know, India, it's a huge, huge issue over there. They actually have among the highest amount of products they make in India for this purpose. From the documentary, I realized that it's actually not an issue that's dying out and they're prepared to suffer for it.
2: So, Ashna, have you ever been on, like, the receiving end of some shadism? Like, do you have any experiences that you're willing to share?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Growing up, a lot of people would say to my mum, you know, your daughter's quite dark, maybe you should keep her out of the sun." It was a constant underlying thought in, in many relatives that I'm darker than also most women in my family. You know, it was always seen as normal that Ashna can't sit on that sand lounger. She has to sit on the one in, with the umbrella on it because she can't be in the sun. And, oh, getting skin lightening creams for Christmas. Like, what the what? hell? Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, not by any, this is not, nothing to do with my, my parents at all. It would just be relatives you know just like oh just try this cream it's really good for clearing up your skin slash whitening your
1: skin the story about the sun loungers and never being allowed in the sun that's mm-hmm. pretty shocking the christmas presents because i remember being given things like fake nail sets for christmas and i'd be like, i don't know what you think, what the hell you think i want to do with this <laughs> but like to think that that may be the equivalent but more entrenched in racism i suppose and in structure so now you're you're quite successful at what you do being in tv journalism how do your family yeah. see that your wider family
4: they're all you know, incredibly pleased. But it's interesting though that television has moved so quickly and it's become such an acceptance to be of any shade. Anyone can be on TV. But I don't think that I would be accepted in the same way as a journalist as I am here if I were to work in somewhere like India. I genuinely feel that I would be too dark for them to put on screen. It is. So evident still in their sitcoms, in their television program, that women have to be a certain shade to be on screen.
2: So you feel like it would be easier to be like a TV journalist in England?
4: Yeah, definitely. Wow. Or in somewhere like America, Western, I definitely think they're more accepting.
0: Hey, folks! I'm Mark Maron from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft tissues
2: Which is weird. You would think it would be the opposite because, I guess, stereotypically, that England is lighter skinned than somewhere like India.
4: I think it's because most you watch TV and the people on TV are seen as people to aspire to and that's why people of lighter shades of skin tone are on so many different shows in India because you see the programmes and and you think, oh, I'd love to look like her, I'd love to look like him, you know, just because of of the way they look.
1: So do you think India is aspiring to Western ideals of beauty in very generic terms, but that maybe, for example, the UK and America, they're trying to appear a bit more diverse because a lot, I don't know, there must be quite a lot of migration of different ethnicities and so they're trying to... I don't know, is
4: the UK any more diverse? I think people are too scared to call out countries like India because I mean I don't know how our barber feels about this but certainly in India there's just so much to want to be lighter because of the people that appear on screen and I think people are too scared to say something about it.
1: I have a friend who's Tamil and he said that it was absolutely revolutionary for him when he saw on Netflix the Masters of None and he saw the, yeah. the actor whose name I've totally forgotten right Adi, now.
4: Aziz Ansari, yes. Yeah.
1: That is it. and Because he, he said it was the first time that he saw someone who looked like him as the main character in a TV show.
4: Absolutely. I rang up my brother as soon as I saw that show.
1: I think that's such an interesting
2: experience that white people just are completely unaware of, the
1: the complete excitement to see someone who looks like you on TV. I've never called my brother to tell him that there's someone who looks like him on TV because I'd be ringing him all the time and I don't want to talk to him that much. (laughs) I was talking to one of my friends and we were trying to figure out when I first became aware of beauty standards and I think I actually realised around six that I looked like what people were supposed to in that if I opened any magazine or if I saw any children's book, I saw kids who were blonde hair and blue eyes and I realised that quite young. And she was saying, Saying that she never had that she's half polish and half jamaican and when it came to world book day she had absolutely no idea what to dress as because there were no characters that looked like her and her friends told her that she couldn't be a princess this is just stuff that you hear and you, it goes straight to your heart and you just think what the heck of this world have i been living in that thinks that that's okay to tell young people to tell anybody and how ridiculous is it that i haven't ever thought about it until i'd reached 24
4: there's been this I've seen in articles recently that some people have commented saying, is contouring shadism in disguise? So where contouring is concerned, the the objective is usually to create the illusion of chiseled bone structure using a blend of light or dark shade with makeup. But for people whose beauty lies in the broadness or the bluntness of their features, streamlining noses and cheekbones to European standards, does seem like a little bit suspect. I don't think contouring is shaded in disguise. I think it, it just so happens to be that somehow you're creating illusions with light and dark shades just to create that look that you're after.
2: So you have gone into... Journalism and specifically TV journalism, is that fair to say? yeah, did you ever have any concerns about getting into TV journalism because of the shade of your skin?
4: Well, I know that there aren't many television journalists who are from a diverse background, so I went into the industry very aware of this. I actually got got into my job at the moment through a diversity scheme because it encouraged positive discrimination in a newsroom, in in any newsroom. But I think it's a bonus. I think if I can have a successful career, and I'm a person of colour, and I'm encouraging other people of colour to get into an industry they would otherwise not consider, then I'm definitely proud of that.
2: I think that's interesting that you got in on like a diversity scheme. So in some ways, that I think people would agree that that's a good thing and that we're actively encouraging diversity. But then at the same time, could it be counterintuitive in that we're not basing it on merit?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people might think it's that. that That's the other issue with the diversity scheme. They might think, why didn't you apply for other schemes as well? But I did apply for other schemes as well. It just so happened that I got through it via this way. I don't know if I wholly agree with the whole quota thing. I think that it's a it has to be a, a balance between both between reflecting the the audience that you're serving so as a television organization are you reflecting that in your broadcasting but also do they have the merit to to complete those jobs
1: I'm definitely I think I've definitely got my own opinions about this because I definitely think that organizations should be actively trying to get more diverse people as part of their organization mm-hmm. and I mean that in terms and I'm very passionate about it in terms of everything in terms of sexual orientation, the nine protected characteristics of the Equality Act, which include things like age and disability and marriage status. and
3: mm-hmm.
1: Because organisations actually fundamentally perform better when A, people can be themselves, but also B, when they are more diverse, because you get more of a range of different points of view and together it means that you, you think about strategies different ways. And when you become somewhere that celebrates the things that make people different, it really can transform the workplace. And I think... Mm-hmm that as it stands, the world isn't fair. It is much easier for a white man who's non-disabled, who's straight, to literally just have the confidence to go up to that person in that bar, start networking and get the opportunity to get to the job interview so he already knows the person who's on the panel to get the job. And I think that's much harder for everybody else. And this isn't even talking about class, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. And I think organisations that recognise this and actively try and take steps to... I think quotas is a really interesting debate and we should probably devote an entire episode to it, to be (laughs) honest. But recognising and celebrating diversity is something that we should not be afraid to do more. I think we are organisations who are made up of mostly decision panels that are mostly white, able, non-disabled men they are afraid of saying, oh, we're a little bit racist because of the way that we do our applications. Actually, you can see the name of the candidate and you can see that it's a different sounding name. So Mm -hmm. we need to be open and honest and appreciate where we come from and then celebrate it and do things like through HR procedures, but also recognise that it's not enough. I, For example... I'm going off on a rant here, but if an, an organisation is LGBT inclusive but doesn't explicitly say anything anywhere, nobody will think that it is. If you just say, we like equality, nobody knows what that means. If you say, we appreciate and value individuals and especially encourage them to apply, especially if they are LGBT, if they come from a working class background, that's the kind of organisation that you will go, I want to be a part of that. Yeah,
4: and I think what's really promising is that... I People like Lenny Henry. I mean, he spoke about it um, at the BAFTAs. He said he's trying to re- trying to get a diversity clause put into the BBC's royal charter. And I think if the BBC do 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 do, do that, it's going to encourage other organisations to follow suit.
1: It would be fucking amazing, and it would probably be really? about high time, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, that's time. Nod- <laughs> yeah, we need we need more diversity on our screens and on our radio stations. And
2: yeah, power to the people. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> Ashna, this has been really, really interesting. Thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything else? Maybe anything that you're working on that you want to plug or you, you want to plug your Twitter or anything that, that we can um, like support you with?
4: Yeah, um, definitely would love everybody to follow me on Twitter, if you have it, um, at AshnaJH. And um, feel free to tweet me any sassy memes because I love a good sassy meme. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wicked.
4: Excellent.
3: Now joined by Barbara. So do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, um, my name's Barbara Ntumi. I am 20-something. I'm a student currently finishing my undergrad and I am a business owner. I'm very active in a lot of politics, especially pertaining to anti-racism, anti-fascism. What elements of beauty are you interested
2: in talking about?
3: I'm interested in talking about makeup. I belong to a Beauty of Colour makeup group and there will be a small section in society that know exactly what I'm talking about and I actually really love it right now. So me saying Beauty of Colour Facebook group is... Like a code. As a black woman myself, you know, hair can be seen as political, how no other group of people have their hair discussed, scrutinised, analysed done over, thought over thought about, written about sung about in the way the black women have so that's something that I like to plug my ears into and listen to and contribute to. I think a lot of beauty is shaped by pure personal experience. For me personally I remember when I was younger my mum used to always say that I was beautiful and growing up people used to comment on looks and looking beautiful etc and stuff. I've realised like in the last couple of years I've struggled with my response to that if somebody says to me oh you look really beautiful I've struggled with it like I just be really awkward for some <laughs> strange reason and I noticed that about like two years ago and I've been actively myself doing work to be like well if someone says you beautiful just you know Embrace it. It's a nice compliment to give someone. Although you should give compliments more than their beauty and what they look like. But beauty is subjective again. And it might not necessarily them commenting on what you look like. They might be commenting on the way you are, the way you speak. It can mean all sorts of things.
1: I've worked really hard. If anyone ever gives me a compliment, I will say thank you. Even if I catch other people saying, oh, yeah, no. Oh, then I'm like, no, no, no. You listen to that compliment. You put it in your pocket and you save yeah. it for a rainy day when you're feeling like crap. That is so true. It's, it's funny awkward. how
2: that's like our default response to be like, oh oh really oh no I don't think
1: so and it's like no
2: embrace it and the
3: disparaging thing that we do like oh god I look like shit or whatever like you start making excuses it's like no, no, no. This person has said to them right now, this moment, they believe that you're beautiful. Just take it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's it's the internal work that we all have to do, right? You know, mm. because of how we've been socialized and brought up, is just one of those things that you have to like, kind of put on your list and say, oh, these are some of the things that I need to work on. I am also in another hair group. It's called um, Black Hair Forum. Again, a section of people know exactly what I'm talking about, and I'm just happy about it. But I'll talk about beauty of color first. So beauty of, beauty of color is a lot of the. Disc- Discussions and a lot of stuff we do that is about makeup, but we talk about much wider stuff. We talk about like colorism. We talk about what's classed as beautiful, what's classed as good looks, and what isn't. Again, like we call people out and stuff. It's a very like friendly learning community, and people give people tips and people tell people, oh, this is where you can get this. And if you like, you know, if you have an issue, i.e., like your foundation doesn't match anymore, as you know, the seasons are changing, especially for Black women in particular when the sun comes out, and you know, we've been hibernating the winter. Uh, most people's um skin tone change which means like they wake up two days later and the makeup that they put on does not match anymore which is probably where capitalism gets your money but that's another conversation (laughs) but it's very nice we support each other and it's i think most of all it's about celebrating every time somebody posts and i go in there and you know i see just how beautiful they are they're different shades different color different types you mentioned colorism what is that the way i understand colorism is that it particularly is an issue that is within the black community. And when I say black, I'm using like a very broad political term. But I'm going to be more specific. So for me as an African, there are different tones and shades and hues and don't get too technical of blackness. Like some people are a lot darker, some people are a lot lighter and Colorism goes back to colonial politics, really. It really goes that deep and that far, as in people who were lighter were described and were asserted as being closer to whiteness and therefore more favourable, right? And those of us that were darker were not as favourable and that really feeds into a lot of racism and racist ideologies, which... Then these people internalize because, pre anybody come in to tell you that, oh, this is much more nicer and this color is much more prettier. In terms of just the media and everything of that nature, in film and television, all of that stuff, you can see that there's definitely a difference. And people who are public facing tend to have a certain look in terms of just the skin colour. It has a deeper impact on relations with people and how other people who are necessarily ascribed to that look are made to feel like they're not as pretty or not as beautiful, they can be as successful. And... It's really sad because then it kind of borders into a very medical thing in the sense where you have darker skinned people, people who perceive themselves to be darker. That's the other problem as well. There are people who you can say, oh, this person is visibly dark, but then there's the issue of people perceiving themselves to be darker and trying to get as closer to white as they can because they feel like that's the best position to be in, lightening their skin, and which can cause very, very... Harmful medical problems for them. It's just very insidious how, like, this very racist ideology is internalized by a group of people and then, in the long run, has health effects. How is that reflected in makeup? That is reflected in makeup as in, I can never buy a foundation from certain brands because when I go into a shop, so this is a real story, I was in Sheffield. I'd run out of foundation and I normally buy a particular brand because I know that they cater specifically to my skin tone and to black people and most beauty brands don't. It's probably the reason why I did not start wearing makeup until like maybe two, three years ago because you have to go to a type of sp super drug or a type of boots. And these are the things that we share in Beauty of Colour. We go, Oh, this super drug has foundation in our skin tone. This is where you should go if you want to buy it. So I went into the super drug and I was looking and I did not find the brand that I wanted. I was like, okay, well, maybe I have to try something new. So I looked at all the other brands and it didn't even it's like I didn't exist. So I went, I went, I spoke to a lady in the shop and I said to her is this the darker that you get? And I say darker, and that's not in reference to actually the makeup being dark. It was still very white as far as I'm concerned. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's all we have. I was like this is sheffield like people that look like me live here that's part of the problem that a lot of things have to be special ordered or you have to go to a specific shop and it's not as available or as accessible as other things are to other groups of people or predominantly white people for example i do think the things are definitely getting better i do think the attention is being paid to those things although be it in a very capitalist way like there's the argument people are, oh there's a whole other market that you're not selling to it's like okay, maybe that works for you, but the general principle is maybe you should just provide makeup for everybody no matter what they look like. And I mean, I understand the argument, but obviously as an anti-capitalist person, it always grates me the wrong way. Your motivation should be diversity and celebrating it, not necessarily making more money. Exactly. For yourselves.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think that was interesting that you said that you kind of have to specially order things and that can get expensive. And then that's just like an extra cost. And that's something that people, white people don't have to expense yeah
3: th- that is true so this is another makeup story and like my whole life doesn't revolve this way but there's a Beats near Uni Islington area being very London centric right now and the makeup brand that I normally buy which is the one that matches my skin tone, that I've always bought since I started wearing makeup I went to the shop and it had it there which for me is like a win like you're on to a winner already then I looked at what they had on offer and I found something that matched me but not specifically like the particular item I was looking for and I kept going like every other three weeks or so to see if this particular thing I was looking for would come and they'd stock up. And after like, it's been like four months now and it still hasn't come. So I spoke to the lady and I was like, oh, so you're not going to sell this brand product because that's the thing that they make. She was like, oh, you know, I don't know. This is all that we have. And it's like, yeah, but you've restocked everything else in the shop accept this brand it does not make any sense to me she's like oh obviously she's not probably the right person to ask on issues like that she probably has no involvement in that but that again speaks to speaks to a certain level of understanding that people have it's like oh we'll stock everything else but this particular brand which i'm not gonna buy that people don't know that a certain group of people buy from this brand because that's the way that this brand markets itself so to not whether consciously or subconsciously not refill the items of that brand just speaks to something more to me like you don't care like whatever you're gonna offer we're gonna buy it anyway so what's the point <laughs> i don't know why i'm laughing
2: so when did you become aware of beauty standards
3: the thing that has always made me aware of beauty standards has been beyonce oh, like yeah. i am the unofficial official Is london coordinator of the beehive Sick. this is my twitter bio so it's, it's true <laughs> slash the j hive <laughs> Anyway.
1: (laughs) I thought you meant Jay-Z. No, No, me too. Okay, tell us about Beyonce. Right,
3: Beyonce. So because of what Beyonce looks like and how successful she is and how how much I love her music. I think she's made me very aware of beauty and the standard of beauty because, so Beyonce did an ad. You can find a makeup ad anyway. It's the only brand that I think she's done a makeup ad for. So if you went on the internet, you could work this out. Basically, I think it has been written about, but if you speak to especially black women, particularly about their ad, Beyonce was winding up. Right. And it was a way for this brand to say, oh, but we do cater to black people. Look, Beyonce, like Beyonce is the person that people wheel out when they say black people. And it's like, OK, but all black people don't look like Beyonce. So you're clearly missing out on something there. And Beyoncé is a different kind of black person, as in she's successful, she's American, she has a certain look that not all black women have per se. So for me, I think her music, watching her music videos, and in many cases as well, like Rihanna coming to the scene, because I remember when she came to some of the black woman, I was like, oh, okay, so there is a certain look, and it's very specific. And I think of all the other black women artists there are that I really like, that are not necessarily... As huge or as famous people like Jill Scott and other people who also look a particular way, i.e. are a lot darker in terms of their skin tone, in terms of the way that they look generally and don't wear long blonde hair or whatever, have a certain level of appreciation. It's not as high as Beyonce and say Rihanna and other people are and that's not necessarily just like appreciation from the black community but appreciation from people full stop because Beyonce doesn't only have black fans like she has other people as well who appreciate her and just made me really aware of what the difference of that kind of beauty and what people perceive as beauty and what the standard is. Like, what are you aiming to? You know, there's a joke like, oh, you know, I'm trying to aim to Beyonce level or whatever, or Rihanna level. It's never, oh, I'm trying to aim to like Jill Scott level or Lauren Hill level. And even if that's brought up, right, that in itself, like let's take Lauren Hill, for example, that's used as another standard that black women must get up to, to bash other black women. It's like, oh, but why are you wearing weaves and and loads of makeup look at Lauren Hill she's like really natural and afro and stuff like y- you just can't win mm. and I, um, for me it's really sad that people can't see that the lesson we learn is there are different types of beauty people look different like that's why there's a Rihanna and there's a Beyonce and there's a Lauren Hill and there's a Jill Scott like that's why there are all these people because we don't all look the same and that's okay that's fine
1: yeah totally you
3: touched a little bit on hair
1: just then yeah about
3: um, natural hair and weaves and stuff
1: mm. do you want to talk a bit about the politics of of black hair?
3: Yeah I mean up until I went natural myself I didn't think the hair was political I really didn't like I said I'm African myself and I was born in Ghana I grew up in Ghana so I'm still I feel like I'm fairly in touch with stuff like that I remember how when I was really really young I got my hair relaxed which is like chemically straightened and I've always done it ever since then and it's just the way that I've thought that my hair to be done and when I think about it the people that I grew up with my aunties my mum everybody that's just what they did. And obviously the context in Ghana is like a former British colony. Yes, we gained independence, but then it was a counter-revolution and then we have a dictatorship for a while. I think some things were lost in terms of, yes, we fought for independence and there was this whole thing about Pan-Africanism and it was Marxist at its heart and revolutionary at its heart, which feeds into why hair is a political thing. And if you look at That era, people wore their hair natural. Obviously, what extent was that work done to carry on? Obviously, that was defeated because you have a generation, my mum's generation, my mum's like in her mid 60s, and then subsequently me, who were following this unchallenged narrative of, oh, you have to relax your hair and that's just what you do. And not talking about the impact it has on your health. Again, it's just really crazy how all these beauty and all these things that are enforcing us and saying, oh, we have to be the this tend to have a very negative impact on our health but people don't raise it as a thing because obviously the overriding nature of racism is so dominant it's like you know i want to i want to fit in i want to ascribe to this thing that i'm supposed to be Mm. that you put your health in the line like you put that in danger because you're trying to aspire to this thing that you're probably never going to be so hair is very important for black women especially I'm of the opinion that you can do whatever you want with your hair what I do want black women to understand is all the facts like have all the options I think that's really important I don't think I've ever had that like I was young and I was told this is what I was supposed to do and blah blah and, and in many ways like people like me who grow older and then decide not to relax their hair and go natural for us it is a political art because it's like oh I'm doing defying all these things i was told younger that this is what i was supposed to look like this is what i was supposed to be but then the other thing is women must be given the freedom and the space to do what they would like i don't believe in judging and telling other people oh your hair should be not like you do what you want the internet is there oh god wonderful thing this thing (laughs) um you can do all the research you want to do you can find out and if you still decide that you want to relax your hair That is your choice. You are allowed to have that. I think for me the key thing is people understanding that there are other ways and not just one way and making the choice which path they want to go down. Uh, but then there's also the political thing about hair is, is also for me, when people say, oh, try not to look as European as possible. And this goes back to you picking up on the hair thing. Oh, there's the Rihanna aesthetic of straight blonde. Like, Rihanna's done all the colours in the world, girl. Then there's the likes of Lauren Hill and Joe Scott, who famously and infamously, and like, if you look through their aesthetic and their pictures and what they look like, have not entirely, but most of the time, ascribed to a Afro what is classed as natural look and what message that sends, and you can be both this is the thing that people don't understand you can have an afro today and have a a straight blood weave tomorrow like that is your choice to do it's really important that you understand the context of which you're operating in and it's really disheartening when you do hear stories like black women working in high end stuff told that they can't have braids and they have can't have conrows when people who are not african for example because i'm going to go with african african korean because that's where conroe and and stuff like that come from do it and it's like oh my god it's so edgy it's so cool like that's part of my culture that's how my people have evolved and stayed close to our roots like this is part of our history and how we've existed and you're telling me that I can't be like that because you believe that it's not professional. It's about who gets to decide that. Black people don't get to decide that. Somebody else gets to decide that for us and then you have to fall in line. And you have a situation where people are choosing between whether they can have a job or have their hair the way they want to. Mm. It's just crazy, isn't it?
2: Yeah, especially when you say it like that. It's just like mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. the choice. So why is hair an issue worth worrying about? I often hear a lot of the time the kind of pick-your-battles argument in that like like, oh yeah, I'm all for racial equality, but we should be tackling wage gaps and homelessness. Like we shouldn't be talking about hair. Why is hair an important issue to talk about?
3: It is an important issue because if we don't fight for my right to exist, to wear my hair however I want to, giving me equal pay is not gonna make a difference to me, is it? Like, It is gonna make a difference materially, but am I living to the full extent of my life in the way that I'm supposed to be? I'm not. So we don't have to pick between the pay gap and hair. For me, they're just as important. To be able to walk down in the street with my hair the way I want it to, with my hair the way generations from me in the African continent have had it, and to be paid as equally as a man, it's not really for choice, is it? I didn't get to pick those things. Those things should be given to me because of who I am, right? I should be able to live that life because it's one life. It's not separate. Me being able to have my hair the way I want to is then being able to have Equal pay, among other, you know, feminist issues. It should be part of the whole struggle. The struggle encompasses a lot of things, and why can't her be part of that? It's really important, especially to black women. The notion that someone's telling me that I should choose is actually, quite frankly, ridiculous. And there are spaces for those conversations to be had. Like, obviously, if you're having a meeting about wage gap i ain't gonna come in there and be like my hair do you know what <laughs> what <I mean? laughs> that's like that's not appropriate i'm not gonna come yeah. in there and gonna be like oh can i make a contribution well it's just really important that like we must up <laughs> black women and their hair it's, i'm like i'm not gonna come and do that because that's not like the appropriate place right what can we do as allies then with really straight blonde hair i should point out that you, like, <laughs> yeah. what could we do as allies i think that. All black women go through personal hair journeys. The most important thing I would say is we should be supportive of people's decisions. As why well, Alice, like you were saying, maybe for me what I can think of right now is listen when women talk about their hair because I know like it sounds, you know, people say, oh, like of all the things you're choosing to talk about hair and it's like, but maybe that's my route into feminism, maybe that's my feminism for me that I'm able to wear my hair however they want. So the issue is about equality, right? And if other women are being beaten with the stick of other women going, oh, your hair should be like this. Maybe should actually not. Your hair should be however you want it to be, and I think for me that's really the heart of the issue. So we should really just keep pushing for there to be diversity in everything, yeah, in, in
1: makeup and a celebration of yeah, it, really, yeah.
3: And I don't know if you know, there was a Gap ad in America where they had all these young girls in, and there was a black girl, and it was like, "Yay, black girl!" She had natural, she had them um, dreadlocks. And when people try, and even when you get it wrong, the lesson to listen to why people are saying that you have got it wrong, and maybe try again. Because we never know these things until people try. And basically, at the end of this Gap ad, the scene at the end was just so heartbreaking because you had this white girl basically put her arm... It was sort of the black girl was like a bit of a stool thing. And you saw the whole thing, you were like, oh, crap, this beautiful, dark-skinned black girl with dreadlocks and, like, all the black affirmations you could possibly need in the black community, people who look like that, who have been, you know, systematically marginalised, and that's just always been, like, the historical perspective, right? To have that in, and it's like, oh, but this white girl just put her head like put her elbow on the head of this black girl and that was the picture of the ad and it was just so heartbreaking the key here is not to be defensive the key here is to be like well maybe she didn't have to put like it could have been innocent and it really could have but what is the image that's then down because you don't have time to explain that oh they're playful and they're friends in everyday life that would happen it's fine they should have been a bit more woke basically do you want to explain to very quickly woke. what woke means
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we did we did google it oh did you <laughs>
3: Would you like to clarify what it means? So, my understanding of woke is an awakening, right? You awaken to the injustice and, like, you're aware that everything is not... As it seems, and then the narrative is like once you've opened your eyes to those things, the unfairness of how Britain can just go bomb Syria and like we can't do nothing about it, like the and and refuse to take refugees, like how dare you? You know what I mean? You can't do anything about it, and it's hard because yeah, we can't physically change the situation now, but actually, it's the continuum. It's us pushing and pushing and pushing, eventually. That is gonna have a breakthrough, hopefully. And the objective is once you have awakened, stay woke. Don't forget that, yes, you're not gonna win the battle tomorrow or the day after, it's a process. So stay woke, keep pushing. Thank you so much.
1: And that's really good coming from you as an activist I've got so many issues. I want to ask you one more thing. And that's about the medical disadvantages of chemically straightening. You touched on it a little bit, but I've never heard of any of these things. Can you tell me a bit more about what they are?
3: Right, okay. So there's issues where like physically your hair could fall out. So the process basically undoes the coils in your hair, which essentially means that it kills off your hair. Because what happens is, isn't it that... Once you chemically straighten your hair, that's the end of it. You have to keep doing it when you have new growth. So basically, killing off your hair as it grows and and, and altering like the structure of it and like the physical things is like you can get burned because it's like it's a chemical. People get burned people get scars, people get sore, people's hair fall out.
1: You are describing the hair as being relaxed. It just it's, <laughs> it's not, it's it's not, not right. It's <laughs> a
3: big lie, right? It's a myth when they say relax. That's why I try to use like chemically straighten because language is important as well, right? Yeah we should say you're chemically altering the structure of your hair and basically killing it off because every time you have new growth you have to relax it again to match the bit that you've already killed off it's so insidious people don't think about it it's like relax it gives off the feeling like you're doing something good chilling out it kind (laughs) of
2: makes it like easier to digest in a sense just kind of like oh i'm relaxing my hair it doesn't really give the true meaning of what's exactly
3: the power of language like you you use that term and Nobody thinks that it's an epidemic that we need to look at. Nobody right. thinks that it's a serious issue that we're altering the structure of our hair. Like right, if nobody... I'm going to recommend something now. I'll go for Chris it. Chris Rock, Good Hair, documentary. I really love the documentary because I think for me... I didn't wake up overnight and was like, I'm not going to do it anymore. I think it was just... A process of things that gradually happen and I was like oh you know maybe I shouldn't do this thing anymore because it doesn't really seem to be helping me that much to be totally honest and these things happen culturally So basically Chris Rock did this documentary because he has two girls and he's married to a woman a black woman and Chris Rock is a black man of African descent who has a family full of black women and he's grown up all his life watch us do these things to ourselves. Relaxing is far the word from it. Trust me, it is how. It is pain. It is actual pain. And the worst thing is, when you've got this chemical in your hair and it's burning, and there's this notion of, oh, if I leave it a bit longer, it's going to make my hair like super, super straight. So you sit there in this pain... For five, ten minutes longer, just so when you wash it out, your hair can be super straight. It's just fascinating. It's, it is. It really is. And it's it's a testament to how insidious white supremacy and and racism is, really, isn't it? That you convince a group of people to essentially torture themselves yeah, to look more like physically you.
2: Physically inducing pain. Exactly. And to have a job. The idea that that's, <laughs> like, how
1: hair should look for your job. That that's acceptable. That's professional.
3: I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but, like, every now and then, this conversation comes out when people screenshots it. To Google, when they're like professional hair, and it's loads of white women like blonde hair, like wavy, like you know, in the ads. And then you Google unprofessional hair, and it's literally tons, shit tons oh of black gosh. women. Oh my gosh, I've never it even tried that really but is I'm afraid, shit tons of black women with their natural hair. It's not shit tons of black women with like weaves, like and whatever it is, shit ton of black women with natural hair. Google needs to fix up. What would you like to tell your younger self? Go back, wow, tell Barbara maybe when you're around 14.
1: Yeah, one piece Right, of OK, when I
3: was around 14... Oh, this is going to sound like a really sub story. I was in the UK at that time, and I hated school. So I went to school in a town called Barnsley, and <laughs> there's a uh, insidious kind of nationalism which saw, like, the BMP always in the town centre and stuff. And school was very hard for me as a black person. At one point, I was the only black person in my entire school. I mean, I was dealing with a lot of things at the time that my mum didn't understand because she's of an older generation and her approach has been you know yeah people are racist yeah people don't like you but you kind of just have to get on with it but people think that I shouldn't exist it's quite hard to get on with life when people think that you shouldn't exist or that you're shit or that you're that and you know and, and, and that you're less than them and that you're not human it's actually really quite hard to get on with stuff so if I could speak to my younger self, I'd be like you know what it's not as simple as just saying, oh, it's hard now, but it's going to get better because it took a long time to get better. And that was because I said, well, fuck what you think. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? I exist. Fucking deal with it. And just basically understanding how race and racism work. Like I said, I was born in Ghana and I didn't have any concept of race and I knew of white people and whiteness per se and up until that point my view of whiteness was very it's different it was just like oh it's just oh somebody just looks different from me which is okay but not understanding that that was the basis of which other people were going to treat me because I didn't look like them so if I could speak 40 year old me I'd be like go to the library and check out my comics book and read it quicker because <laughs> you would have shut people down a lot quicker than you did so it's probably what I'd say like,
1: do you think the idea behind that is the assault- is not with you it's with society yes. and like so yes. you just keep being yourself you keep being great yes. and uh, yeah. you'll get you'll become more and more aware of it but it's hard to become aware of it because you yeah. have to actively look for mm-hmm. it research it and, and find it Yeah, it's not given to you in a textbook in history
3: Yo, history was, like, the worst subject I hated. So one
2: last thing that I want to talk about is sassy teas. Yes! I want to touch on this and everything to do with that.
3: I'm from a working class family, single mum, and London is mad expensive. Just because I'm an anti-capitalist doesn't mean that, like, I shouldn't make money to live on. I need to think of a way that I can bring in my politics and do something with it. Yeah, sassy teas came along, and I was... Generally inspired by a lot of what I'd seen in America. The main ones I saw were just generally like reselling stuff to people who are interested in popular culture, which is fine. But I was like, oh, I am interested. Like, I want to know what Beyonce wore to the Met Gala, which was a oh, fire, by the way. But I also want to know what's politically going on in the world. I want to know about the Black Lives Matter struggle. I want to, you know, read about people who contributed to me be physically in the space that I'm in Sassy Teas was one so Sassy Teas we're super super political and like companies that don't like to have any political affiliations we have one and we're team Jeremy FYI yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think my main target audience are black women <laughs> they're like my number one target people who buy stuff from me
2: can white people buy stuff from sassy Tees? yes yes because there's a tote
3: bag on there <laughs> that i really white, want no certainly white so this is a question i actually asked myself because it's like who are you making this for and it's like well i'm definitely making it for black women because i'm a black woman i'm making stuff that i would wear and it's like hold on a minute but everybody can wear this if you ascribe to the politics this That's really what it is. The fact that a lot of the named people on my stuff are not white people is really important to me. But you can try to ascribe to the character and values of a non-white person. As a white person, that is a fair thing to do. If you think that this person has the same policies as you, the only thing that's differentiating you right now is the social construct of race, to be honest. So yes, certainly white people can definitely buy my stuff. And we do have some very, you know out there stuff which i have to caution people sometimes because people see in the street and they don't get it so me and my friend had a conversation about a particular item on the website which is carry <clears throat> yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man that's the, bag <laughs> that's
2: the one we <laughs> fucking love <laughs> that's the one that we want
3: <laughs> right most people love this and i love it too and i you know i've carried that bag around but i was talking to one of my friends who is a black woman she was like i really liked this bag and i would wear it but if I in certain situations, I will flip it around so people can read it just because I feel like if somebody did not understand... Well, um, it can be hard
1: to see and recognise your own privilege. So if you don't understand, if you're not woke, I guess, yeah. then it doesn't make any sense. Like Go
3: on, Sid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't have any issue and I wasn't aware of that. And my, my friend raised and I was like... We had a very interesting conversation about it. And it's just obviously... There is a fear. I mean, like, we've seen people not wearing backs and just generally, like, Muslim women and Muslim people being attacked and pushed in front of trains and stuff. Like, it's not a very far-fetched thing that somebody would try and attack you for having an item like that, so... But I think that that's, is part of the conversation. But some, some lady did stare at me for like ages and she just kept rolling her eyes at me. And I really wished I had a spare one because I would have given it to her and be like, girl... <laughs> we're on the same side okay
1: so where can people <laughs> find all of your stuff what's the
3: website Ooh, link right the website is www.sassytees.co.uk you can follow us on twitter at sassy you can follow us on instagram at sassy like t-shirts tote bags with these t shirt tote bags the slogans on Ooh. um we do some headscarf. african head wraps it's just like i don't know when i put a head on i'm like yeah i can take on the world come at me
2: <laughs> thank you so much no for problem. coming on. This has been amazing. Yeah,
3: thank you so oh, much. You've I been very it bad. It's fun. Shout out Sid and Elena.
0: Brr, brr, brr. Woo!
3: <laughs> Sid and Elena, stay at work.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Hold up, what was that?